So the scripture this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. It's the third week. Have you memorized it yet? I just hope I can read it. So um, please stand for the reading of God's word. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Uh, Quickly before we dive into this uh, portion of scripture this morning, just something I want to remind you of. Easter is a little later this year uh, than usual, but our schedule will be different on Easter Sunday morning. We will meet um, in the gym for uh, brunch at 9, and then we'll try to be in the sanctuary to start our service at 10 o'clock because we usually go a little longer on Easter Sunday morning. And I just want you to be aware of that um, schedule and be sure to invite somebody to come to Easter service with you. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day to all our Irishmen out there, Irishmen and women. Um, I would say... Um, and Monty and Renee aren't here this morning. They're, they were at the Pac-12 basketball tournament this weekend. I would just say it was a good weekend for green, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, and then I want to thank you for being here today. I, I really mean that. Um, thank you for showing up. It's important that we do. You know, in the, in the book of Hebrews, we're told uh, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. We're to come together and to gr- encourage one another. And all the more, it says, as you, as you see the day approaching. And when it says, as some are in the habit of doing, it doesn't mean, well, some are in the habit of coming together. That was the given. Some were developing the habit of not coming together. That's what this admonition is about. And it says, all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, folks, we're 2,000 years closer to that day than we were when it was written. So it seems to me that it's even more important 2,000 years down the road to come together as we have today um, than it was maybe even at that time. Although, as we shared in Sunday school this morning, they expected Jesus to be back any day. And they lived that way. So thank you for being here this morning. Um, 
Well, we've been talking about this passage um, in, in uh, Romans. Uh, this is our third week on verses 14 through 21. But it all hinges on the opening line of, uh, well, uh, this portion of Scripture beginning verse 9 where it says, Love must be sincere. And Paul goes on to talk, talk to us about how sincere loves in our relationships with people. Um, a challenge we must all deal with is people problems. And we are to love sincerely. And so Paul tells us in this passage what that looks like when dealing with folks who are difficult, unfriendly, or adversarial. Um, how, how many of you um, have ever read or maybe watched the, the series that was done um, on the Lord of the Rings? Are you familiar with Tolkien's writing? Um, okay, some of you are. Well, uh, this may be a little foreign to you then. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, his name was John Ronald Rule Tolkien, was a Christian. Um, apparently, uh, he professed Christ as Savior, and he played some kind of part in C.S. Lewis uh, becoming a Christian. They were contemporaries. And you're probably thinking, what's that got to do with Romans chapter 12? Well, it's relevant because one of the themes of the story, um, the trilogy, illustrates our passage from Romans chapter 12. There's a scene in Lord of the Rings where Frodo, who is a hobbit, if you've read this, I don't know how to explain all this to you who are not familiar, but he's a little person, okay? Uh Almost as tall as Bernice, but not quite. She gave me a thumbs up. And um, he's, he's uh, in conversation with Gandalf, who is uh, a, a wizard. And they're talking about Gollum, who is this nasty little creature. And it says, uh, what a pity that Bilbo, who is Frodo's uncle, did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. This is Frodo speaking. This is a number of years later. Pity, says Gandalf. It was, a, it was pity that stayed his hand. So let me take you back. Um, Bilbo's down in the pit of the earth and... He comes across this nasty little creature called Golem, and um, Golem has lost uh, a ring. It's a ring of power. You, when you put it on, you can disappear. And he, Bilbo finds the ring, and uh, Golem discovers that he's lost it, and he's frantic. Uh, the ring kind of gets a hold of you. It's like something that almost possesses you. And... Uh, you know, this is a nasty little creature, and in his, in his hidden state, Bilbo actually has a chance to do in Golem, but he does not. And uh, so at this point, that's what the discussion is about. Um, again, what a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance, says Frodo. Pity, says Gandalf, it was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. That's why Bilbo was not harmed by the ring, because he began his possession of it with pity. 
I can't understand you, retorts Frodo. Gollum deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. For even the wise cannot see all ends. And this, this conversation between the wise old Gandalf and the young hobbit, it did indignant that the creature that had tried to kill his uncle had now betrayed them all to the dark Lord Sauron, was still alive. He's regretting that fact. But it echoes the words that Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Golem had evil intents. Bilbo had a chance to end his life, but he did not take advantage of that opportunity. We've looked at the key teachings of this passage and remember that the context of Romans chapter 12 presents the idea of Christians being people who are transformed, whose minds are being renewed so that they live in conformity to God's will, not the pattern of behavior in the world around us. There's supposed to be a difference between us and people who don't know Jesus. And we've talked about the fact that this isn't easy. To live this way is not easy. It's a supernatural thing. It is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. That's the only way it happens. We've acknowledged the fact that this kind of lifestyle involves loving our enemies. Not just loving our friends, our family, those who care about us and love us, but loving those even who do us wrong. And that's definitely not the pattern of the world around us, is it? Get them back. Um, you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, You touch a my car, I break a you face? Doesn't that sum up the common attitude in the world that says payback is the way to go? You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. And God is calling on us here to adopt an attitude that is totally at odds with the way the world around us typically thinks. And so here, here's, here's the points we've made in the last couple of weeks. Choose to speak good to and of your detractors. Identify with their circumstances. Do your best to understand where they are coming from. Don't think of yourself as better than anyone else. Remember... Everyone has something to offer. And so we pick up today at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. So our next point is this. When treated wrongly, do not respond in kind. Do not respond in kind. As Christians... We should be living lives that show that God's power is ultimate and that good will prevail. 
Rather than continue the cycle of evil by paying it back with evil, we should seek to overcome evil with good. Now, there is, of course, a place for wrongdoers to be punished. We have a system of laws and courts that are supposed to see that, see to that. And it happens in this world, and then ultimately God will judge everyone. We know that that will happen. The Bible tells us so. But in our personal lives and in our personal dealings with people, we are encouraged and even commanded to overcome evil by doing good. We respond differently. Here's a formula that never works. Wrong plus wrong equals right. And we've heard, heard it said this way, two wrongs don't make a right. In fact, returning evil for evil only tends to escalate the situation. I heard uh, in a sermon I read on this passage, one, one pastor had this to say. Heads up here. Evil always expects to be repaid with evil. Evil wants to grow, to be perpetuated. That's why it plays upon our more explosive emotions and draws anger out of us, leading to hurtful responses that create even more harm. It's a, it's a downward spiral. Evil thrives on cycles, often gaining momentum with each retaliation, with each payback. However, Evil is often totally disarmed when it doesn't perpetuate itself. When the response to it is grace and mercy and kindness. When the circuit is broken, its power is broken. We are called on as Christians to be circuit breakers. Maybe you've heard of the system of payback that is practiced in among the tribes of New Guinea. You know, um, a member of one tribe is injured or even killed by a member of another tribe, and so what you do is you figure out a way to pay them back for the harm that was done to your tribal member. And, 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 and that's a, that begins a, a, a cycle of payback, okay? They paid us back, now we have to get them back, now we have to get them... And it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back. And it lasts for, it can last for gener- generations. It amounts to a, an endless cycle of revenge. The scriptural admonition in Matthew 7.12 is, Do to others as you would have them do to you, not do to others as they have done to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you, not do to others as they have done to you. Or, even in our society, sometimes it's do to others before they have a chance to do to you. Matthew 7.12 again, So in everything do to others what you would have them to do to you, for this sums up, the law and the prophets. And Jesus is hearkening back to the... To the well, when, remember when he summed up the commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. 
1 Thessalonians 5.15 See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You know, it would be nice to stop at the do good to one another. We could say, well, obviously Paul's talking about the context of the church. We need to be nice to each other in here. Oh, but he added that, and to everyone. Oh, man, are you kidding? You don't know my neighbor. You don't know the guy I work with. You don't know my second cousin twice removed. Whatever that means. So I think it's interesting that Paul said that. Seek to do good to one another. And to everyone. He's making sure that those he's writing to understand that this is com- command is not just for those in the church, one another, but for everyone. So how does that sit with you? Do you find it easier to obey this scripture with one group or the other? I don't know. Sometimes we don't even do so good with the one another, do we? much less the everyone. See, a very important reason why we need to practice the admonition of this scripture is because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's heart. And that should be our heart too. And sometimes it's difficult to have that heart with someone that we're having a difficult time with. Someone who's mean and nasty. Someone who's disagreeable. So, if someone who doesn't know Jesus has done us wrong, and we choose to do wrong back, what effect do you think that would have on our ability to share the gospel with that person? To invite them to church? Or if they came to church by chance, would you be able to greet and welcome that person? They might be surprised to see that you're here. Watchman Nee tells about a Chinese Christian who owned a rice paddy next to one who, one owned by a communist man. The Christian irrigated his paddy by pumping water out of a canal using one of those leg-operated pumps that make the user look like they're sitting on and pedaling a bicycle. Every day after the Christian had pumped enough water to fill his field, the communist neighbor would come out, remove some, some of the boards between his paddy and the Christian neighbor's paddy, and all the water would flow out into the communist neighbor's Rice paddy. That way he didn't have to do the work of pumping water into his field. This continued day after day. Finally, the Christian prayed, Lord, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose all my rice, maybe even my field. I've got a family to care for. What can I do? In answer to his request, the Lord put a thought in his mind. So the next morning he arose much earlier in the pre-dawn hours of darkness and started pumping water into the field of his communist neighbor. Then he replaced the boards and pumped water into his own rice paddy. In a few weeks, both fields of rice were doing well. 
And the communist neighbor came to know Jesus as his savior. So what if this man had reacted in in a vengeful, angry way? Do you think his communist neighbor would have been willing to hear about his God? And then again, from verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. The next point, do the right thing all the time. In the NAS, in the New American Standard Bible, that, that portion of the verse sounds like this. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And that word respect here means to think ahead of time, to take forethought. See, our natural tendency in situations like this that are adversarial or difficult is to think about what might hurt the one who hurt us and do things that we know might push their buttons. You know, we've got to get them back a little bit, or maybe a lot. And Paul called for the exercise of genuine love, which focuses on actions that are godly and considered good, even by those who have hurt us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21. For we are taking pains, Paul says, to do what is right, not, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. All who are watching us were seeking to do right in their eyes. And that's God's call on us. And I know, again, this is not an easy thing. It's a supernatural thing to try and do right in the eyes of those even who are critical of us. But the... You know, uh, in, in the book of Peter, Peter says, it's one thing if you suffer for doing the wrong thing. You deserve that. But it's commendable. And God will bless you if you suffer for doing the right thing. Listen, if we choose to do the right thing in response to the wrong thing, people eventually will have to admit, that was the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Even those who are in an adversarial position with us will have to admit that that was the right thing. Now they may not doing that may not do that willingly and they may continue to cause us problems. But God says if you've done the right thing in those situations, you will be rewarded. By the way, that doesn't always happen as quickly as we like, does it? Sometimes a trial continues for a while. And then verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now there are two qualifiers in this verse. And here's what it tells us. Do your best to live at peace no matter what others do. Do your best to live at peace no matter what others do. The two qualifiers. Paul says, if possible. If possible. And then, as far as it depends on you. Those are the two qualifiers. See, you cannot control other people. Therefore, peace may not always be possible. In other words, you can do your best to live at peace with someone, but they may determine not to live at peace with you. If possible, 
as far as it depends on you. So it's our job to do everything possible within our disposal to initiate reconciliation with people. We go the extra mile. Our goal should always be, if possible, to live at peace with everyone. We know that in the world we live in, if you take a stand for Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture, there are probably some people out there who will not want to live at peace with you. But it's our job to try and live at peace with everyone. And our natural tendency at times is to divide people into the group of those that we fight against and those that we live with. You're my live with group. But there's a group out there that we, uh, we tend to fight against. Maybe not this way, but maybe in an ethical, moral, scriptural sense, because we're at odds with belief systems that we're contending with. And yet God's call on our lives, in as much as we are able, is to be peacemakers. Remember he said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's our job to take the initiative to do whatever we can to make peace with difficult people. And then moving on. Verses 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of us really like the sound of that one. It's kind of a nice way to get back at people in a nice way. Hebrews, uh, oh, don't, excuse me, next point. Don't seek revenge, that's God's business. Uh, we see this idea repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. It says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. You know, the natural tendency in the flesh is to want to avenge ourselves. Is it not? I mean, no one else is looking out for our best interests, so we better, we better do it. Paul makes it clear that vengeance is not our calling or our job. God didn't call us to the revenge business. That's his alone. God called us to forgive and reconcile, not punish and condemn. See, the offended party, who would be us, is never in any position to fairly affect justice. In other words, or putting another way, a judge is never allowed to judge his own case. The legal system works carefully to avoid conflicts of interest. And when we're the ones who determine what the punishment should be, decide that we're going to exact vengeance, then we're the judge 
judging his own case. We're never to try to get justice for ourselves, but turn it over to the one who judges impartially, the absolutely righteous one. And besides the the prohibition concerning vengeance, Paul adds two admonitions here. The first is this. Let God do his thing to them. In other words, leave them in God's hands. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Stay out of God's way. God alone sees all that needs to be done and can perfectly deal with life's injustices. I remember going to, uh, and I've shared this in our Sunday school class, so this won't be news to everyone, but I remember going to a, a biblical seminar one time and, and um, our lives were looked at as uh, kind of the, the person kind of drew this circle. Our lives were looked at as a pie. And kind of leading up to this, he said, you know, if, if I'm driving down uh, this, uh, the road in, let's say, somewhere through the country in the and the speed limit's 45, and I'm going 60, and boo, I see those lights that we don't like to see in our rearview mirror, and I get pulled over, and I get issued a ticket. Now, Boulder County owns a piece of me. Right? And there's something I have to do so that they don't own a piece of me any longer, and I have to go to court, and I have to pay a fine. Well, he said, our lives are like that. When somebody offends us, when somebody's gone 60 in our 45 mile an hour zone, they've offended us. They've broken the law. We now own a piece of them. And there's two things we can do with that piece. We can get our pound of flesh. We can make them pay back. You owe me. You've offended me. Or, see, that's the judge judging his own case. Or we can give it to God. And this person says, if we give it to God, that's a place where God can go to work in that person's life. And you know, there are some people, it's wedge after wedge after wedge after wedge, isn't it? Piece after slice after slice after slice out of our pie because they offend and they hurt over and over again. And every time they do that, we can make a choice to hold on to that and get ours back or we can give that piece and that piece and that piece and that piece to God and say, it's yours. It's a place where you can go to work in that person's life. He also said when we do that, things may get worse before they get better. Because when God goes to work in someone's life, they come under conviction. And when people come under conviction, they get uncomfortable and they don't like it very much. And they might get crankier before they get nicer. But that's what we're to do. Vengeance is not ours. We give those things to God. So besides leaving vengeance to God, Paul instructs us not only to speak well of those who persecute and hurt us, 
But he wants us to do good to them. Oh, man. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I've said, and I'll say again as we read this, if you're... If your motivation for being nice to somebody is to make them miserable, is the idea of heaping burning coals on their head, you're probably doing it for the wrong reason. That's really, you're kind of seeking vengeance, aren't you? So the opposite of seeking vengeance or retribution is seeking ministry. Be feeding the hungry. Be, be giving drink to the thirsty. Such action proves beneficial to that person. And I don't want to be beneficial to that. And, and this whole idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head by serving them, by ministering to them, can be viewed in a couple of different ways. Some think of feeding and watering the enemy as a backdoor to vengeance. It will cause them to be miserable. Yes. And I suppose that when we react in kind and generous, caring ways for our enemies, to our enemies, a way that is totally unexpected, there may be a sense in which this is bothersome to them. However, I think the intent from God, and that should be the intent from us, may be clearer in the source verse that that Paul is referring to here. It's from If you look down in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll find that this verse comes from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, we know that the Lord won't reward us for taking vengeance. So what's this talking about? Well, the commentary on these verses in my Bible says the expression may reflect an Egyptian expiation ritual in which a guilty person, as a sign of repentance, carried a basin of glowing coals on his head. The meaning here then would be that in returning good for evil and so being kind to your enemy, you may cause him to repent or change. The Lord will reward you even if the enemy remains hostile. That's what happened with the man in his rice fields. He was, you could say he was giving water to his enemy. And the response was it changed this man's heart. The meaning here then would be that in returning good for evil and so being kind to your enemy, you may cause him to repent or change. The Lord will reward you either way, even if the enemy remains hostile. God call, excuse me, Paul here calls for an act of love that not only responds to ill treatment by speaking well, but also by doing well. And then let God deal with their response to you. And then, then Paul wraps it all up with this final verse. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Don't be defeated by evil, but conquer it by doing good. Booker Washington said, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. The only way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. Frederick Buechner in The the Magnificent Defeat says, The love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, the world smiles. The love for the less, less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassionate and touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed when we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortureds for the love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. Um, I was talking in my office the other day. I was meeting with a dean and Jason and Pam, and I mentioned this particular um, story to them. It's a true story about four allied POWs who endure harsh treatments at the hands of their Japanese captors during World War II while, while being forced to build a railroad through the Burmese jungle. And they had a... Uh, they were hurrying to try and build this line through the Burmese jungle into India and, and uh, the, the time frame that they wanted it done in was basically impossible. So they were basically nearly killing their captors um, because of the workload and their failure to feed them adequately. But ultimately, this group, or at least some of these prisoners, find true freedom by forgiving their enemies. So at the height of World War II, Singapore is invaded by the victorious Japanese armed forces and a small group of retreating Allied soldiers led by Lieutenant Colonel Stuart McLean, Major Ian Campbell, Captain Ernest Gordon, and Lieutenant Jim Rudin is captured and led to prison in a camp deep within the jungles of Burma, Siam. By the way, uh, McLean, Campbell, and Gordon are either English or Scottish, and Jim Reardon is an American. Upon arriving at the camp, the POWs are forced by the Japanese to build a railroad through the treacherous jungle wilderness. Escape is their first priority, but when their commanding officer, Colonel McLean, is ruthlessly killed by the Japanese head guard, the men are left to themselves without a leader. Major Campbell, the colonel's second in command, rises to the challenge and starts a suicidal takeover of the camp by the prisoners. His greatest obstacle is loss of morale caused by slave labor, starvation, disease, and brutal beating. Led by the example of British POW Dusty Miller, Ernest Gordon, who is a captain, 
decides to start a college of liberal arts and a church without walls inside the camp. And he begins, so each man who has an area of expertise, some taught Shakespeare, some taught Plato, and some taught the radical teachings of Jesus Christ. And the the prisoners begin to regain their dignity and hope, but they also that they are also encouraged to forgive their enemies and sacrifice themselves for the sake of their fellow POWs. Lieutenant Reardon, the American, when he first came to camp, he was in it for himself. It's each man for himself. But there's a point later in the story, after he's been a part of this school, where it turns out that at the end of the day, when the soldiers come back from their work, work that they do in the jungle, they count every tool. So many tools went out, so many tools come back. And they discover that a shovel is missing. And they want to know who took it. And the men stand there for a while, and finally Lieutenant Reardon, the guy who had been all for himself steps forward and says, I'm the one who did it. And the Japanese guards beat him to death with a shovel. And later, in recounting the shovels, they discovered that they'd miscounted and that they were all present. So this man, who'd been in it for himself, was changed by the radical teachings of Jesus Christ and was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his other POWs. And so Gordon and his school are soon in conflict with Campbell and his attempts to escape. He he has a a deep-seated hatred for his Japanese captors. And the rival values lead to split loyalties within the camp. And once, once the allies come and, and, and set the prisoners free, Camp, Campbell's main goal is to, is to wreak punishment on his captors. And on the other side of that is Ernest Gordon and those who have been part of his liberal arts college who have made a decision to forgive their captors. And they're the ones who are set free. See, Campbell lived with this hatred the rest of his life. This is a true story. Campbell lived with this hatred the rest of his life. Ernest Gordon became a chaplain. See, this is it's a story of sacrifice and forgiveness. Sacrifice for one another, one another, forgiveness for enemies who treated them so harshly. It's, a, it's about the triumph of the human spirit and the work of God in someone's life over harsh treatment and inhumanity. It's, it's about the journey from the prison of self-survival to the freedom of self-sacrifice and forgiveness. Of treating enemies in a different way than the world says we should treat them. And folks, we may not find ourselves in a POW camp 
treated harshly, but we live in a world where we're surrounded by people who think very differently about the world than we do. And we all are in situations, be it in our families or in our workplaces or wherever it might be, where we come, we get crossways with people for one reason or another. Or they get crossways with us. And God says there's a way that you deal with those things that's different from the way our world says you should deal with those things. And folks, it only happens supernaturally. I think a couple of weeks ago I said, we might be able to do this for a short time in our own power, but it won't last. The only way that we can do what we've been called to do in this passage of Scripture is as the Holy Spirit works through our lives to react to difficult people with sincere love as people with transformed, renewed minds. Amen? That's what God has called us to do. Pray with me. Father, these are challenging scriptures for us. And the messages we hear so often when it comes to difficult people, to people that are adversarial, people who show hatred and dislike for us, what we're encouraged to do, culturally what we're encouraged to do, what many people would tell us to do is treat them the same way that they're treating you. Get them back. Don't let them do this to you. And yet, Jesus, you have called us to love them sincerely, to make a difference in the lives of our enemies by treating them differently than they ever would ever expect us to treat them. To love them sincerely. And so, Jesus, may the commitment of our lives today be to live as people who abide by the truth of your word and love the difficult people in our lives with the sincere love of Jesus Christ, trusting, Lord God, that first of all, we are in your hands and you take care of us. But through our actions and attitudes and reactions, you will work in their lives as well. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and stand and close with the family of God.